0: kids are dismissed. Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1 this morning, and uh, last week's sermon, uh, really the introduction, those are sermons I always wrestle with in in complete honesty. Um, I I know they're not throwaway sermons. I I always want to give the context, but they're a little hard for me because I'm eager to get more into the meat of of a book, Um, but they're so important to understand. And so thank you for uh, some of you really gave some encouragement this past week about how those bless you, and I'm, I'm, so I'm really thankful for that. This week, though, we want to jump fully into the book and start our journey uh, into Nehemiah. And so we're actually going to do all of Nehemiah chapter 1 this morning. Um, it's it's a lengthy prayer from Nehemiah. Uh, there's nine prayers of Nehemiah in the book. This is the longest. And so it really will help to set the stage for us as we work into uh, this amazing book and the story that, that goes along with it. We'll read it in just a moment, but, but I want to maybe introduce it to us this way this morning. Taste is a funny thing. We all have preferences. We all have things we like or don't like. I tease my wife and her family uh, that they love strong flavors. It, it's some of the, it's the Greek heritage. Uh, there's never a meal that there aren't pickles and olives accompanying. They like strong vinegary taste. They like just flavors this way. Uh, taste is a funny thing. Some people like some things. Some people don't like other things. Uh, I don't know anybody that the first time they drank coffee liked it, um, but but it wears you down and, and you come to really love it, I, I, at least I do, over time. I had one season of my life, I just couldn't drink it anymore. I had gone to China and Hong Kong and I went to Starbucks in downtown Hong Kong and they did not know how to make a cup of coffee. Um, you're like, how could that be? Because they drank tea over there. It was so bad. The coffee was so bad, I literally could not drink coffee for about three months. Uh, But that's okay. You don't even need to pray for me. I weaned myself back on it. It's good now. I'm good. Um, Taste. It's just funny. The things we like, the things we don't like, things we get passionate about. Uh, What sport team someone roots for. uh, Where you want to go on vacation. What movies, books, or shows you like, or ones that you can't stand. I introduced my children to Full House recently. I don't know why. They love it. I hate that show. Oh, it's torture for me. But they love it, and they think it's hilarious. We all have different tastes, different preferences, things we get passionate about. What's hard hard is hiding it if you really don't like something. Uh, Trying to pretend that you're passionate about something you don't prefer uh, can be really, really difficult. And so maybe a good way to introduce it is with this little girl uh, trying her mom's spaghetti. Her mom, who is admittedly not a cook, quarantined lockdown a couple years ago. She had to eat mom's spaghetti. And and she's a sweet girl because she really wants to be convinced that she likes it. Last thing she says there is, yes. can I have some dessert now? Um, she's just trying to choke it down. You know, none of us do a good job hiding something we're not enjoying. Um, maybe you can relate to that. Now, I actually love spaghetti. So while I've never had <laughs> this little girl's mom's spaghetti, um, all things being equal, I would typically love some pasta. But it's a totally different matter when you are introduced to something and you just sheer delight. It's just amazing from the get-go, like this little guy trying bacon for the very first time. I mean, he's got a two-fisted at this point. (laughs) Now, obviously, uh, some things are better than others. And clearly, bacon was better than quarantine spaghetti. Now, uh, just watching that kid makes me want to have a a fat BLT this afternoon. Thick tomato, white bread, and Duke's mayo. It's the only way to eat it. And uh, you just can't hide it. When there's something you're passionate about, something you love, you, you, you can't, there's no mistake in it. Everybody knows about it. And what's funny is passion can be contagious. Uh, you see someone else delighted in something, and maybe even previously you thought you didn't like it, but you see just the sheer, unadulterated delight of it. It'll make you want to try it. That's just the way passion is. Nehemiah 1 is all about passion. It's all about a stunning display of someone that is unbelievably unabashedly passionate about something the whole book drives it everything Nehemiah does centers on this zeal and this passion what's so striking about it is Nehemiah is passionate about something that frankly most other people don't seem to care very much about at all and so I want to read Nehemiah 1 and I want you to see what what is it that just captures Nehemiah's zeal his heart his affections The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th years. I was in Susa the Citadel. Susa is the winter home of the kings, um, of the Babylonians originally, the Assyrians, uh, the Medes and Persians have now taken over. That's where they would go in the summertime, that's where he's at, or the wintertime, excuse me. Uh, that Hanani, one of my brothers, we know from chapter 4, this is a physical brother. He's not just talking about a brother in, in a sense of another Jew, but his physical brother. Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I, my father's house, have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them, bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. There's a stunning contrast between the coldness of the report in Nehemiah's response to it. There's a stunning contrast to the Jews that have left Babylon and been able to go back to Judah to start rebuilding the temple and the city and really a people group and the fact that they've stopped and they've given up in the process. There's a stunning contrast between those that have given up and Nehemiah who's passionate about reviving the work. There's a stunning contrast in Nehemiah's emotions, his affections and everything that seems to be the centerpiece of what he desires. He responds as someone who is passionate about something, weeping for days, fasting, I can't even eat, I don't want to eat, praying, the intensity of Nehemiah's response is a call to us. It's a call to us to be passionate about God and his glory. It's really the only thing that truly matters. And so as we work into Nehemiah, it's important that we begin here. And and so let me just ask this. What are you passionate about? What are the things that get you excited? What do you daydream about? Let's just do a thought process here this morning. What if suddenly someone was to give you a million dollars? Just a million dollars, here you go. Uh, What would you spend it on? This isn't a trap. I'm not going to get to the end of these questions and say, gotcha, see you love the things of this world more than the things of God. That's not (laughs) the So you don't need to try to even over-spiritualize at this moment. I just really want you to journey with me here. Somebody just dumped you. Here's a million dollars. What would you spend it on? What would you buy? What are the first things that come into your mind that, that you say, this is what I would get? If money were no object, where would you live and what would you do? Who would be your friends? What would people, the people be like that you surround yourself with? What would you enjoy doing? What kind of work would you do? What would you engage in? someone took me on this thought experience recently and i was thinking through some of these things and you know what's interesting is is i think any of us would want downtime but but i've already lived long enough to recognize sitting around doing nothing would drive me crazy i got to have stuff to work on i got to have something to do give me something to do yes i love fast cars yes i love to drive yes i i i love to to enjoy God's creation through humanity of, of a great classic car. So I definitely want some classic cars. I'd want a cabin somewhere in the North Carolina foothills of the mountains. I don't want to live on the top of the mountain. That's just annoying to have to drive 35, mile, 35 minutes up a curvy road. But I want to live close enough to see the beauty. I also want to live close enough to the ocean so I can go enjoy it. I've been to Colorado. I've seen the mountains. They're gorgeous. I don't want to live in Colorado. I want to live close enough to the mountain to the, to the ocean as well. I want to have friends who are engaged, uh, who, who love to talk about fun things and intellectual things. I, I want to go to concerts with people because I love great music. And I want to spend my life helping problem solve issues. And what would you do? What are you passionate about? I want to help people. I love helping people. I love being engaged with people spiritually and helping them to grow and change. But what, but what about you? If, not, if money were no object, if time were no object, let me, maybe another way you could think about it is when were you the happiest? When was the last time You were the happiest or most satisfied or most content. What are those moments in your life you said, you know what, when I look, that's when I was happiest? These kinds of questions and this kind of thought experiment, they might help to just reveal some of your passions. And again, I'm not taking you down that as a pathway to condemn you or the things you would love or the things you might delight in. I just want to point out that everyone in this room is passionate about something. Everybody is. It's natural. God has hardwired us to be passionate about things. And, and some people, you automatically know their passion just by spending time with them. One of uh, and she grew up, have a neighbor, David Hallberg. David has Down syndrome. Um, David remembers my name, and he'll give me a hug, and I've I've known him now for for almost 20 years, but we will not get 30 seconds of that conversation without him talking about the Braves and giving me a hard time about the Yankees. David is passionate, passionate about baseball. But if I want to move him off of that conversation because it's annoying me, because he gives me a hard time about how much better the Braves have done the last few years, I just ask him about Airbud. Air Bud. you're like, what's Air Bud? Air Bud are these dumb movies about this golden retriever or Labrador. David loves them, and he has them memorized. If that doesn't work, I ask him about yearbooks, because he will sit and study yearbooks for hours. He loves them. I know his passions. I've known him 20 years. I know his passions. And some people, they just, it's, they ooze it. Other people, they, they might even think, well, I don't, I don't know that I do, but everyone in this room, everybody in this room is passionate about about something from sports teams to traveling to cars to cooking to decorating to organizing to art to reading to movies to kids to grandkids to pets to the beach or the mountains or wide open plains frankly if that's your thing. Everybody's passionate about something from fishing to hunting to driving to knitting to drawing to playing games to just spending time with friends to being a foodie and trying to New, delightful delicacies. Everyone is passionate. Listen, I don't know what else Nehemiah was passionate about. But I know he was passionate about God's glory and God's people being broken. Because it oozes out of him. In all the universe, God has created this tiny, spinning globe. And we live in a massive universe filled with galaxies. And here we have this tiny globe. And on that tiny globe, he has stuck roughly 8 billion people now. But out of that tiny globe, he picked this one little spot. And out of that one little spot, he picked the tiniest of nations, it would seem. and, And inconsequential And in them, he picked this little other area with a mountain. He put a city on it, and he put a temple there, and he said, I would come and dwell. Why did God do all those things? This is a microcosm of his glory because it has always been God's plan to have people that he dwells with in righteousness and experience his his eternal presence. And so Israel and Jerusalem and the temple were intended to be a picture of that. When I was a little boy growing up in our basement, my dad had a four-by-eight piece of plywood that he was turning into a model train layout, HO model, tra- HO model train layout. And when I was a kindergartner, I'd go down to the basement, uh, and there he had the track laid down, and he had mountains uh, starting to be formed. He had a tunnel that, that came out, and it was intended to look like the Appalachian Mountains where he had grown up in, in West Virginia. And in, as a little boy, I could see it. I could see it. It was a microcosm. So when we would go to see my grandparents in Beckley, West Virginia, it was like I could see the train layout. When I looked at the train layout, it was like I could imagine going to visit my grandparents. It was a model, a microcosm of a greater reality. That is what Jerusalem and Israel and the temple are. They are a microcosm of a greater reality. And so Nehemiah is passionate about God's glory being revealed and how it is now seemingly broken. And so Nehemiah once. Nehemiah to see the restoration of God's glory. What Nehemiah is broken, is mourning is the brokenness of the imaging of the glory of God, a place of his presence with his people, passionate for him. So what could fix it? What, what might be the only thing more powerful than Israel and the temple in Jerusalem? It's restoration. I love cars. You know this. I'm a car guy. My passion zoos out of me. There's something profoundly special about seeing uh, a a Mustang, a 64, 65 Mustang 67, which is the best model year, but that's beside the point, that looks just like it did on the showroom. But I'm not a trailer queen kind of guy. I mean, if you're going to have a car, drive that thing, drive it and enjoy it. What's the point? Who needs a museum piece? And so there's a joy in seeing it brand new, never marred, not a scratch on it, not a bug gut on its front, that is different than the glory of seeing one that's used and enjoyed going down the drag strip as fast as it can. And then there's a whole different glory of seeing it restored and fixed and made beautiful once again. And so Nehemiah begins to think through these passions, and we see it ooze out, first of all, in how he references the people who have escaped. You look back at verse 2, it says this, Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, those who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. Now, that is a strange way to frame it. Those who had escaped. We know that Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the king. He lives in the palace. He has a cushy job. He has a trusted job. He has a whole staff that he would oversee. No wine, no food touches the king's lips that Nehemiah has not first made safe. He, he has to be a guy that the king has implicit and total trust in. 100% confidence. And yet Nehemiah would contrast the cushiness of his job feeling like a prison compared to those who have escaped. Nehemiah's heart is not for his personal safety, but for God's glory. It tells us a lot right at the start. People who live passionate for God's glory find their sense of safety, security, and identity linked to God and not to their circumstances. It's the followers of Jesus when everyone else was offended by what he taught. And they all wanted to abandon him. That Jesus looked at his own disciples and he said, will you also leave me? And they say, where would we go? You alone have the words of life. There's a rejection of that which is comfortable, that which makes you safe, and that which makes you feel secure out of a passion for God and his truth. It's an important and unusual perspective shift. Nehemiah's perspective is those who are living in a broken down, burned out city are freer than he is. This is so countercultural. Our tendency would be to think, even as Christians at times, that the world is far freer than we are. Our temptation would be to think, but look at all the things they get to enjoy and they get to do that we don't. Look at the restraint that we experience because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. But when we are living with a passion for God's glory, we do not think. We do not perceive obedience to God as a prison. We see it as freedom. What makes me free? My identity in Christ. But second, Nehemiah is surprised, which stands out to us. If you go back to the text, verse 3, they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exiles in great trouble and shame, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. Nehemiah is clearly shocked by this news report, which, which should make us pause. And those of you who were here the last week, you remember the city was burned and, and destroyed, the walls broken down, the temple destroyed, uh, well over 100 years prior by the Babylonians. So why is Nehemiah shocked? That it's still in that condition. He knew that it happened. So, how is this any surprise to him whatsoever? He's surprised because Ezra had gone back. Zerubbabel first had gone back to rebuild the temple, then Ezra had gone back to try to rebuild the people in the city walls. And so Nehemiah's expectation is the job has been accomplished. Unfortunately, what had happened is the Samaritans, the people who lived in the north, who had become intermarried with the Assyrians, they wanted to play a role in the rebuilding of the temple. And, and the people in Zerubbabel and Ezra said, no, you can't because you're not Jews anymore, and you don't worship the one true God. They got angry about it, and they became fiercely opposed. And so as they began, Ezra began the process of trying to rebuild the city walls. These Samaritans wrote a letter back to the king of Babylon, and it falsely accused them. And said that they're going to build the city, they're going to resist you once again, they won't submit to you any longer, uh, they're going to follow their own God and you can't trust them. And so the Babylonians had given authority to these Samaritans and Ezra chapter 4 records for us that they violently opposed the rebuilding of the walls. All of this had happened some 10 to 15 years earlier. Nehemiah could not imagine that in the last 10 to 15 years, somebody had not gone back to the work and finished the job. Now, that'll become even clearer because Nehemiah is a book filled with people opposing him, and it never, ever stops him. Don't ever think that chasing God's glory is going to be easy. There will always be enemies. And Nehemiah can't wrap his brain around, though, that these people have not gotten back to the job. He couldn't imagine that so many would have let go of the dream of restoration. He couldn't imagine that there would be such a lack of courage to chase after God's glory. He's surprised because he has a very different uh, perspective on the rebuilding. See, Nehemiah can't fathom to have the freedom to do God's work and to not be doing it. He doesn't even understand that. And so he's stunned to find that that is the truth. When I was in China sitting with an underground church pastor, I met with three different ones and then some pastors in Hong Kong, and I asked them all the same question and maybe a little bit different form. But at the end of the day, I asked them, how can I pray for you as a pastor here in China? And the three underground church pastors, what was fascinating to me is they all gave the same answer right off the bat. It was this, would you please please pray for the apathy of the people of our church? I said, really? They said, yeah. They they chalked it up to the persecution. And so their perspective was because the Chinese government was so fiercely persecuting, they had to hide. When I went to visit the the church, I laid down in the back seat of this car and, and hid as we drove past the guards at the apartment complex. And their perspective was because of the pressure and the opposition, that's what led Christians to be apathetic in China because they were like, it's easier to live for the things of this world than to follow God. So, yeah, we kind of want one toe in the church and one toe out of the church. They said, please pray for the apathy. And then one of the guys looked at me and said, I just I know that that's probably hard for you to understand because, and this was what he thought, because in America with your freedoms, I'm sure the Christians there are so on fire. That's a hard moment to tell him. You know what that told me is it really wouldn't matter if there's pressure or no pressure. The heart bent to apathy is true for every Christian. Nehemiah can't imagine that, though. He See, Nehemiah, in all of his cushiness, in all of the comfort, views himself in prison and can't wrap his brain around having the freedom to obey God and to not be doing it. He can't even, he doesn't get it. He doesn't understand it. He expects everyone to push past their fear and their selfishness out of a zeal for God's glory. You know, a person who's passionate about animals, they can't fathom a person who doesn't love their animals. I love my Nextdoor app um, because it's entertainment. And, and people complain about all things. And if you want to see somebody really complaining, Let somebody run across an animal that's running around without a leash on. Or the worst one. The worst one is somebody who chains up their dog in the backyard and it's barking. There are some fierce animal lovers. I mean, there are some call the police on their neighbor's animal lovers out there. They can't fathom somebody who would own an animal and not take care of it. They they just can't wrap their minds up. Now, I'm opposed to that as well. But these people are zealous for this because they love animals. they're passionate. When you're passionate about something, you can't imagine somebody else not being passionate about it. A person passionate about life can't wrap their minds around someone too afraid to have new experiences. A person passionate about truth can't understand someone who lies to save their own skin. A person passionate about God's glory can't grasp the cowardice and lack of love of people who give up Or give in in the face of enemy. It's David standing there as the shepherd boy looking at the whole army. And he can't figure out why nobody's going down to fight this giant. Like, are you not hearing what this guy is saying? He can't get it. Nehemiah is passionate about the glory of God. And so he cannot understand, he cannot comprehend the fear, the cowardice, the laziness, the apathy of the people that have been left back in Jerusalem or have returned and escaped, who are now not busy about God's business, what we do with our freedom reveals our passion. What we do with our love reveals our passion. What we give ourselves to, what we spend our time on, it will reveal our passions. And so, what do you do with that? What does Nehemiah do with this weeping and this fasting? Well, he turns to the one who can help, who can actually satisfy, who can, who can bail me out of this situation. Where do I turn when, when it's hard? One of my nephews had a loose tooth some time ago, and he was struggling to get it out. <clears throat> and, and I have a unique relationship with my nieces and nephews. I'm the funny uncle. Um, I'm also the uncle that, that is, I don't suffer fools lightly. One of my little nephews, for example, got in the habit he was going to call his aunts and uncles by their first names. Now, I think he knew and I knew there was going to come a moment, a meeting of the minds. Because I'm not Steve to him. And you don't talk to me that way because that's not how I roll. And so we, sure enough, we're out playing disc golf. And he looks at me and he goes, good shot, Steve. And he's giving me the look. He's waiting for the response, right? And I looked down, and I got down face-to-face with him. And I love this kid. This kid is super sweet. I love this kid. Um, but he needs some boundary lessons. So I looked at him. And like I'm the first aunt or uncle that looks at him and says, hey, buddy, um, I love you. Uh, you can either call me Uncle Steve, which is a term of affection and, and respect, or you can call me Mr. Steve. But what you're not going to call me is Steve, because we're not peers. But I love you, so I hope you go with Uncle Steve. And he just looked at me and goes, um um, thanks, Uncle Steve. So I gave him a hug. We didn't have any more problems. That, that's the kind of uncle I am. Like, that's is how we roll. I love this kid. So when I broke my foot last year, you know what he did? He sat down right away, told his mom, I want to pray for Uncle Steve. I'm worried about Uncle Steve. He drew me this huge picture of Goofy in a wheelchair. Hope you feel better, Uncle Steve. Mail to me. I love this kid. This kid loves me. He's amazing. But that's the kind of uncle I am. So I looked at one of my nephews and I said, oh, you got a loose tooth you can't get it out? He said, yeah. I said, me and a pair of needle nose pliers can take care of that for you. Well, these kids don't know, what it, am I going to do it or not going to do it? Now, to be honest, had he'd taken me up on it, me and a pair of needle nose pliers would have had a story. But he was bright enough to know, I don't know that I want Uncle Steve near me with a pair of needle nose pliers. I don't know what he's going to do. I, he's the uncle that will probably do it and yank the tooth out. He knew I was not the answer to that problem. When you and I have a problem, who we go to and what we run to reveals what we trust in. Where we think the answer lies. Who has the power to fix it? Remember now, Nehemiah is weeping for days. I mean, Nehemiah is crying like someone has died. He's fasting. He's praying. He's going to end this chapter with his title that he was a cupbearer. And what that points out, and part of the reason it's so important to see this prayer before he ever gives his title, is Nehemiah's first thought was not, I got this. His first thought was, I need some help. His first recourse was to pray. He's not going to rely on himself. When life makes you this sad, this discouraged, this broken, where do you turn? It's a little bit like a phrase that I really hate. And so I might step on your toes here. I I don't know if you've used this phrase. So this is not a personal attack if you have. But I am going to correct this phrase. Here's the phrase. Do all you can and trust God with the rest. I hate it. I hate it. That's a little bit like if I needed my tooth pulled and I went to the dentist And it would be like me telling you, yeah, I helped the dentist pull this tooth. Really? They're going to be like, what did you do to help the dentist, the expert, the powerful one? What did you do to help the dentist pull your tooth? You know what I did? I showed up and I opened up. That's all I did. You know what you you and I do? Yes, God works in us and he works through us. But it's not let me expend all my effort and then trust God with It's Frankly, I need God empowering me every step of the way or nothing getting done. And it is a serious perspective shift that we need to understand. Nehemiah is not approaching this massive problem with weeping and fasting and praying with the mindset of, what can I do to fix this? He starts from a position of who can actually satisfy this passion. What do you do and where do you go when life is obviously broken? It reveals your passions. Absolutely. Nehemiah prays for days. As I said earlier in the sermon, there are nine prayers in the book of Nehemiah. This is the longest one. This prayer is structured like a lament to God. It, that's a sorrowful prayer. That's a confession of sin making bold requests. Nehemiah goes the one with power. And I just want to walk you through this prayer uh, in two ways. First of all, the titles that he gives to God. And so if you go back down in the text, he says this in verse 5. And I said, now he's recording his prayer, and I, and I do want to pause one more time maybe to point out the fact that Nehemiah is strangely autobiographical. It is. Uh, it might be the only, if it's not the only, it's incredibly rare throughout the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, to have a leader giving us an autobiography. Moses writes the first five books, but he doesn't write it like an autobiography, like, here's my story. Nehemiah is writing this like it's his story. We'll get to chapters, I think it's eight and nine, where it's clearly not Nehemiah. It goes to third person, but here's first person. Why does any of that matter? Because there's probably an editor who took Nehemiah's journals, and so we're getting Nehemiah's heart. We're getting real-time exposure of what Nehemiah's doing. So Nehemiah is literally writing his prayer out, and he says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. And so when he starts, he gives three different titles of God. First one he gives is Lord. It is the covenantal name of God for Israel, Yahweh. When Moses wants to know who is God, who do I say that it is? You tell them I am, it's Yahweh. It's it's a covenant name. Now, this is important. This name shows up more than any other name for God in the Old Testament, over 6,800 times. It is always the name that God uses to reference the promises he makes with his people. It's attached to his power. So when it says the Lord of hosts, it's Yahweh of hosts. Uh, he's the covenant God who leads all the armies, Adonai or ruler, is always started with Yahweh Adonai, the one who rules us. He's the covenant God who rules. It communicates two two core truths, this name. God loves us, and God is personal to us. It's almost like Nehemiah's first question in the midst of his sorrow, and I think sorrow breeds questions. Brokenness breeds questions. Uh, A city in trouble, People in trouble are going to start having questions. How did we get here? Uh, what has happened that we're here? Um, what decisions could we have made different? Hindsight is twenty twenty, right? Um, and and so uh, it's the classic Monday morning quarterbacking. Well, you should have done this, this, and this. And and you get to this spot when you're dealing with what God has put you on mission to do. And it doesn't matter what it is. Maybe maybe. Um, the mission that God has had for you in your singleness and how you invest your life and how you steward life and how you influence others, how you impact others, how you use your time, gifts, and talents. And you might get to a point in your life and you're looking backwards and you're like, I'm really dissatisfied and I, and I really don't see... Um, where I've lived much for God's glory or for God's kingdom, and I'm not sure what to do now, what do I do with that? And our temptation, our tendency is always to be looking back, asking, how did I get here? It could be, happen in an organization. Organizations drift or organizations begin to fail. Um, our church has gone through a hard season. It would be tempting to say, well, what have we done and how have we gotten here? Sorrow and difficult times always breed questions. There's nothing wrong with that. Could I have done anything different? Should I have done something different? Um, could I have functioned in a different way that I wouldn't end up where I'm at right now? But Nehemiah is helping us here with his first time of God because I think at the core of every believer who's going through a difficult season, your first question is always this, where is God and how is he relating to me? You can boil it down in a couple different ways. What's his relationship to me? Does he love me? Where is he? And it's very clear that that's where Nehemiah's heart has gone. And what Nehemiah is telling himself right off the bat is Yahweh, know what? I know what God's relationship is with me. He loves me, and he's personal to me. You might remember that when we studied through Job, that was the key issue for Job's heart towards God. And it was the issue the three horrible friends kept telling him, God doesn't really care about you all that much. He's just running the world like a chess chess game. He's not very personal to you. And you'll remember the good friend, and ultimately God at the end of the book, say, no, I do love you, I am in control, and I'm very personal with you. Yahweh. In the midst of his discouragement, in the midst of his zeal and his passion for God's glory, Nehemiah is reminding himself of who God really is. But secondarily, he calls him God of heaven. Lord Yahweh, God of heaven. It's a little bit unusual. It's a little bit unusual. It shows up another time in the Old Testament. But most predominantly, that kind of phrasing actually shows up in extra-biblical literature outside of the Bible, and it's the common phrase that was used by people who lived in that region. When they talked about the god, whoever the, the chief god was, because they, they worshipped a pantheon of gods, who's the the top god? That's what they would call him, the god of heaven. And so Nehemiah uses this phrase. But we know Nehemiah is not using it because he somehow bought into the idolatry of the Medes and Persians. Why does he use this phrase? And it's actually an amazing moment because the other time that this has shown up was uttered by Abraham referencing leaving this same region and heading to the promised land the God of heaven who brought me here you know what Nehemiah's other question is it's the same question your heart should be ringing with Nehemiah remember Nehemiah is more middle management and he's not a pastor he's like us right he's he's like your average person just trying to follow God and his next question was, is there anybody who's ever been in a situation like I'm in right now? You ever asked that question? You ever approached the Bible and been like, man, I am in a bad spot. Can I just get some truth? And you start hunting for somebody you can identify with in the Bible. You're in a spot where you don't have the answers. You're loving somebody. You're caring for somebody you don't know what to do. I I was in that spot in my wife's cancer journey. And the person, one of the people in the Bible that my heart just kept going back to and back to and back to was that father who takes his son, who's demon possessed. He can't fix his son. His son's in a terrible health crisis. His son is actually suicidal because of this demon. He takes his son to Jesus and he says, please heal him. This is right after the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus, can you just please heal my son? Took him to the disciples first. The disciples couldn't fix him. Can you, I, I can't do it. And Jesus looks at me and he says, if you have faith. And the dad says, I believe, help my unbelief. That's so ministered to my soul. Because I saw how Jesus responded to someone who said, I believe, but I'm really struggling to believe. Right? So what's Nehemiah do? He's thinking about Abraham. Abraham, who lived in the same region, who left and goes to the promised land. And he's like, that's what I feel like. I feel like Abraham. And so he's meditating. His heart is is just soaking in truth about who God is. So God is this covenantal God who loves me, who's personal to me. God is this kind of God who brings people. Listen now, God is the kind of God who brings people out of a place of trouble to a place of promise. That's what he's thinking about. But then he gives a third title, great and awesome. Great and awesome. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God you know what the question is that he's answering here? and I just love it because I'm like, I love when you study the Bible and you're like, oh, they're normal and so am I. It's normal that my heart would say, where is God? It's normal that my heart would say, where can I find truth of people that understand, they're going to get, I need to know that God gets me. You know what the third one is? Where have I seen God move before? Great and awesome were phrases that reflected God's love and his power in an awe-inspiring way. You know what Nehemiah is saying? He's saying, God, you have loved me and you have amazed me in the past. I need you to amaze me again. When's the last time you prayed that? God, I need you to blow my mind. I need you to move in a way that astounds me. And I need you to open my eyes to see that that's what you're doing. I need you to move in my heart and in such a way so that I'm not like the people, the audience. When you read through the Gospel of Mark, one of the things that it keeps saying is that they were in awe of him and they were in awe of him and they were in awe of him and none of them believe. You know, it's like it'd be like you and I watching America's Got Talent and seeing a magician and we're like, how did they do that? That's amazing. The whole time we know it's fake. You can see God move and it not move you. But you can also be so amazed by what you see God doing that it knits your heart to his. And so it's not just I need to see you move, God, but I need to see you move, and I need you to open my eyes to embrace it and to experience it so that my heart is drawn to you again. I've seen you move before. I need to see you move again. That's what he's crying That's what Nehemiah is praying. Nehemiah is reflecting on the personal loving God who brought his people to the promised land using amazing power. And Nehemiah is actually saying this, the spot we're in right now, where I'm at right now, is just as bad, it's just as dark, and it's just as hard as when you're telling me Abraham's gonna be a nation and he's an old man and he can't even have a kid. Or the Jews were stuck in 400 years of slavery. This is just God, you're gonna have to move. That's what he's crying. That's what he's praying. And so then he starts to pray. And the rest of the prayer fills the rest of the chapter. You can break it down. Let me break it down for you in this lament, just so you see the structure. There's an invocation. <coughs> That's verses 5 and 6. That's when you're calling upon God. Uh, we all give invocations in our prayers. Um, o oh Father, um, our Father in heaven, God of heaven, uh, lover of my soul. We all give invocations in our prayers, and that's what what he starts with. He moves from there to confession, verses 7 and 8. We've acted very corruptly against you. Have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. Uh, Nehemiah just takes ownership. He's part of the covenant people, and he owns the sinfulness of it. He just does. And he puts it in we terminology. He moves from confession to remembering. God, please remember. Remember the word you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there will I gather them. I will gather them, bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. God, remember your promises. I love that. You know, it's funny. it seems ironic to remind God, who knows all things, of what He said. That's that's not the British would call it cheeky, right? It seems a little bit like, hmm, maybe like if I told my kids, you know, tonight I'm going to take you get you ice cream at Sonic, and then later, Dad, remember you promised ice cream at Sonic. Well, you could say that nicely, or you could say that mean, meanly, right? Like we all know that. But but Nehemiah is reminding his heart as much as he's reminding anybody else of what God has promised. And it's okay. And then he makes his request, verse 11, O Lord, let your, ser- let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Give success to your servant today. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man, which preps, prep, preps us because he's going to go before the king. Now, we saw this in, God, in the names of God. It's very clear that Nehemiah is word-soaked. Nehemiah is very clearly, in his discouragement, he has begun to either read afresh or remind himself of the truth of the word. it's, It's very much like a mindset of saying, did God not say this? Has God not done this? And it's actually all through this part of the prayer because each one of those are direct quotations or references to other parts of the word. In Deuteronomy 4, you have Moses' statement. When Moses is introducing the law, when Moses is giving the law to the people, he comes off Mount Sinai, here's the Ten Commandments. It's very clear that this is what Nehemiah is thinking about and meditating on. Uh, when he goes to the remembering, he goes to Leviticus, and that is the moment of prayer with, with what's going to happen when you wander. It, and it's amazing because, remember, God said, "If you'll be, I'll be your God if you'll be my people, and I'm making a covenant with you. But if you wander, I'm going to do This and you're going to need to repent. And that's where they're living right now. They have wandered into idolatry and disobedience. And so Nehemiah is thinking, what is supposed to happen then? He reminds himself of it. Psalm 1 3, it talks about God giving us success. And it's actually the same Hebrew phrasing. And so actually turn to Psalm 1. And see what he's quoting here. Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. There is no better description of what the Jews who are in Jerusalem and Judah are doing right now than that. They are actually walking in the counsel of the wicked. They are standing in the way of sinners, and they are sitting in the seat of scoffers. They have bought into the lies of the Samaritans. God doesn't want you to build this city. You better stop. But Nehemiah is thinking, but that's not where I'm at. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. We've already seen it with the names of God. You see it in his prayer. Nehemiah's heart was, I'm in a season of trouble. Where should I go? I'm going to go to the word. Where do you go when you're in trouble? He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. It's the same phrase. Nehemiah is saying this to God. God, I am passionate for your glory. And this whole nation issue, it is a wreck. But God, I am in your word. I'm delighted in your word. I'm seeking to obey your word. And you made a promise. You promised something, God. And what you promised was that there'd be some success in that. And so I'm asking you, God, to fulfill what you already promised me. Do what you said you were going to do. There's no real question here that Nehemiah is passionate about God's glory. It's clear. But here's the question I really want to ask us this morning. This passion for God's glory, this passion where he views, no matter what your circumstances are, if you're in a position to be able to obey God. He views that as freedom. What can you do to obey God in this time of distress, in this uh, season of discouragement, in this hard spot that you're in? What can you can you obey God? What that then you have freedom? That's how he f- sees it. And in this distress, where am I going to turn? what am I going to do? And Nehemiah is passionate about God's, about God's glory. So here's my question for you. Does this passion for God's glory is it natural or is it grown? In other words, is this because of Nehemiah's personality? Look, everybody, everybody um, preachers, they all preach different. They, they all do. I am a product of having grown up in a Pentecostal church, gone to an almost all-African-American Bible college, and living on the west side of Baltimore. I am who I am. I ain't Popeye the Sailor Man, but I am who I am. I'm a product. My wife has known me for almost 20 years. She will tell you the way I preach now is the way I preached 20 years ago. My brothers have watched on it. It's the same way I preached 20 years before that. Just, I am who I am. I get excited about God's word and I'm passionate about it. I talk too fast. Sometimes I yell. That's just the way it is. I try to slow down, help you out, because that's, you know, nobody, when you're thirsty, nobody likes to crack open the fire hydrant. I get that now. I'm working on it. I know. Please be patient. You've been patient. Please be, like, I am, like, It's just important for you to understand a passion for the word and for God's glory. My question is, is it because of who I am, is it personality? Or can it be cultivated? Are there some people that are just never going to be passionate about God and his glory? I, I believe in Jesus. I've prayed the prayer but I'm so I'm I'm like closer to an Anglican than anything else, right? Like I, I'm a I'm a bedside Baptist, I'm a I'm a pillow Presbyterian. I like my church unique with robes and sleep. <laughs> Sunday nap time starts at service start time. Like, I don't know. There's people that are like that. Like, and they're like, they just assume, they assume that passion. Is personality or upbringing or location. So I think you can be passionate and never raise your voice. Yes, although you're going to have a hard time arguing that you are a zealous fan of a sports team and never Yay. Like, I ain't going to believe you. Sorry. Sorry. You know it's true, and I know it's true. And so it's funny when it comes to God. It's like, well, uh, I just don't know. So here's my question. Is passion natural? Is it personality? Is it spiritual gifting? Or can it be cultivated? Which is it? Here's the answer. Yes. I'm so helpful. Here's the truth. I don't want to treat God's glory like I'm choking down mom's quarantine spaghetti trying to convince myself I'm passionate about it. I have no interest in being that kind of Christian. None whatsoever. Oh, Yeah, I love reading the word... The word, it's wonderful. I want my heart ingesting the glory of God. Like that kid that's like in meat bacon heaven. I want to be like a disciple who says, where would I go? You alone have the words of life. I want to be desperate like the dad who says, I believe, help my unbelief. I want to be David. Do you all not hear what he is saying? Uh, All right, I'll go fight him then. I want to be like Nehemiah, weeping and broken and fasting when I feel, see, and sense that somehow God's glory has been diminished because of a season of trouble. I want passion for that. And so, where does it come from? Well, I would tell you, first of all, there is a natural passion. Here's the truth. When you and I, before we come to Jesus, if you're lost, you've never turned from your sin, put your faith in Jesus, your passions are obvious. They are you. We live for ourselves because we love ourselves. And even if we go to a church or give money or serve, we do it because it makes us feel good. I've told you before the story about Bill Hybels famously said through one of his sermons, the 10 reasons I give, and the first four or five reasons were all about how they made him feel. It's all about him. You see, the reality is you can be religious and it still be all about you. Just look at the New Testament, right? We live with these kinds of passions and zeals that are all about us. But what God does is when we get saved, he gives us new desires. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, what he is telling us is he puts in us a new heart. Ezekiel actually puts it the way it takes out a heart of stone, rock, nothing, uh, dead, like a tombstone, and he puts in a heart of flesh. It's beating. It's living. It's thriving. It's like we were Lazarus, and he says, come out. And when Jesus says, come out, to a dead man, you know what the dead man did? Poo! And he came out. They said, no, Jesus, don't open that grave. He stinks by now. He's been dead days. (laughs) Jesus makes stinky people, corpses, live and breathe. And I guarantee you what Mary and Martha wanted to do next. Feed that man. Give him something good to eat. When we get saved, he puts in us his spirit, and it starts to work in us new desires. They become natural because they're supernatural. Philippians bears it out this way. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What does that mean there, work out your salvation? (laughs) Let me put it in the simplest phrase possible. What God has done on the inside, he wants to empower you by the spirit to bring to the outside. When I go to get a watermelon at Walmart, one of my brothers was laughing at me. He used to be a produce manager at Walmart. And I just looked at him and said, I know how to pick a good watermelon. And he just started laughing. I said, why are you laughing? He said, Steve, I worked in the produce department for years. I've seen every manner of checking watermelons for a good watermelon. I said, like what? He said, I had this one lady that would come in. I kid you not. She would take a watermelon off the rack and roll it on the floor. <laughs> and she said, look, the world's full of people that just ain't right. right? You know, so roll on the floor. And however it rolled, she knew it was good or bad. And I'm like, no, man, you gotta see, you gotta look for that yellow spot that's been led to, to, to mature out on the ground. It wasn't picked too early. If it's green all the way around, I said, and you thump a little bit. And he's just looking at me laughing. Look, I'm just telling you though, that system works for me. I don't, you're not gonna catch me at Valentine Walmart rolling wa- watermelon on the ground. You will catch me looking for a yellow spot and thumping it. Because if I'm gonna crack it open, I wanna know what's on the inside. And what God is saying is, I've radically transformed you. How's anybody gonna know? Work it out. Work it out. Jesus in you coming out of you. New desires, new passions. Why are you doing this? Why are you standing for truth? Because God is not a liar and he's now in me and he's called me to do truth. How do you have that courage? I don't have courage. I'm actually filled with fear. But Jesus is in me and he says perfect love casts out fear. So I'm going to love him, love others, and walk in courage. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing. Boy, you seem to be really firm and resistant. You're right, because I'm going to stand against the evil one. You seem to be very aggressive with the gospel, and you you seem to be convinced that God can save people. You're right, because Jesus said, the gates of hell shall not prevail. You used to be given to all these passions, but you're not anymore. And you're like, you're right, because serving idols defies the holy God who saved my soul. What's on your inside should come to your outside. If you show me someone who has no passion for God, then you've just shown me somebody who's spiritually dead. There is a natural passion for God and his glory that comes at salvation. But get this now, get this, it also needs to be cultivated. It's got to be grown. It needs to be worked on. Nehemiah's passion is natural to him because he follows God. But we're commanded to do things like delighting ourselves in God, setting our affections on God, on things above, Colossians 3, loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're commanded to do these things. Listen, my passion for God grows when I realize that this world lies to me. Satan lies to me. My own heart lies to me. But God never lies to me. How does that make my passion grow? I've had people reject me in my life. And I'm sure everyone in this room has to some degree. In different levels. In different capacities. And so some of you, because I I know you, some of you are, when I use that phrasing, it's deeply, I mean, it's like pulling back to deep wounds. And what's hard is, in a moment of rejection like that, or a season of rejection, what you've had the most painful rejection is you've had somebody that's supposed to accept you or has claimed to accept you, then 180 on that. And that messes with you. And from that point forward, you are always going to fight this lie. The next time someone expresses acceptance, love, and affection for you, you're going to be choking down your heart that says, but do they really? Do they really? Now, here's the truth. God comes to your life and mine, and he says, you are a wicked sinner, and I will judge you and send you to an eternal hell. But I love you, and I've sent my son to die for you. And if you turn from your sin and trust me, you'll follow me, and guess what? I will adopt you, and I'll make you my own, and I will never leave you or forsake you. I will never abandon you. The only people that we will feel the safest with are people who love us enough to say hard truth to us so that we can have a full confidence when they speak words of love to us. And no one on this planet does that like Jesus. Who else would I go to? Where else would I turn? Who else would I serve? You see, My passion for God grows when I spend time in his word and I begin to see that that's who he really is. So when I study Nehemiah, and I hope you're getting excited about studying Nehemiah, because we're at the start and it's like, what's he going to do? Here's the question, will God be true or not to these things that Nehemiah is reminding him over? Secondarily, my passion grows for God when I see him care for the weak and the vulnerable and struggling. That's where Nehemiah is at. And so, when I go to his word and I start meditating, soaking, marinating in his word, and I see God care for the weak and the vulnerable, for the struggling and the hurting. When I see him make breakfast for Peter at the seashore, when Peter feels like he's blown it so bad he's no, of no more use to God, and God finds him fishing, makes him breakfast, and then says, Get on mission. I'm not done with you. When I see him be that kind and yet that direct with Peter, who feels like a failure. When I see him deal with bitter Naomi, she's like, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me bitter. That's bold, folks. Let me just tell you, rename me one who hates God right now. And God gives her a grandson and a son-in-law and a daughter who uh, who was a daughter-in-law from a Moabite nation, but now she loves her and she cares. And God just pushes right past. Don't you love when God hugs porcupines like us? I mean, he's just like, "Mm, come on in there. He's like my neighbor Chris. I've shown you how this guy hugs me. He's like Barry's head. Cut, get in here. Right? And, and I know that I'm unlovely. And, and I just see God loving on Naomi. Don't call me Naomi. Call me bitter. And he's like, you just feel like she stayed like this. And God's like, oh, get in here. I'm not done. When I see Jesus push past the woman at the well's resistance with affection and truth and mission. When I see God reach down and Hannah is crying and sobbing because she's never had a baby and there's no hope of a baby and all she wants to be is a mama. And and she looks in such distress that the priest thinks she's drunk. And God looks down and says, here. And not just a baby, but a prophet. And I'm going to bless you. When I see God in his word deal with the weak and the discouraged and the broken, and the people who've messed up, and I see him push through it with love. You know what? I know that I'm weak, and I know that I'm, that I'm broken, and I know that I'm a, I'm a mess. And when I see that this is the God who does that, you know what happens? My passion for God is like in a greenhouse, and it is just growing and swirling. Who else would I serve? What else would I be zealous for than his kingdom and his glory? to see him take broken things and make them whole, broken jars to shine his glory. And so whether it's the brokenness of your home, the brokenness of your work, the brokenness of your life, the brokenness of your past and your childhood, the brokenness of you right now, your addictions, your struggles, your problems, your sin failures, the brokenness of your church, your neighborhood, your community, I don't care. I'm passionate for God's glory to shine out of broken things to show how majestic he is. I won't apologize for it. I won't step back for it, from it. And I'm a little bit like Nehemiah. I don't understand people who aren't. Cultivate it. Embrace it. Live it out. Nehemiah is a long book. And you're going to get to the end. And you're going to see opposition. And you're going to see trouble. And there's nine prayers. Nine prayers. You know what that tells you? There's a lot more to run to Jesus for cultivate a passion for God and his glory. It's the only thing that matters.